0: Part of the Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church, you can listen to this and other messages on our website at www corner or by subscribing to our podcast.
1: You can be seated. Nate, if you could come, Nate's going to read our scripture for us this morning. We're looking at all of chapter fifty, but we're really focusing on uh, a couple of verses that I think are really the meat of this. And uh, Nate, if you would just uh, in your loud voice there, kind of uh, uh, read our scripture for us this morning.
0: brothers also came and fell and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Jesus said to them, Do not fear me, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I, I will protect you and, and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that this morning. Thanks, buddy. Uh, that was a lot to read. And uh, I don't know that I would have done that at your age. I would have been kind of intimidated to get up in front of the church and do that. So I really appreciate you sharing the scripture with us this morning. Guys, for, for nine weeks now, we've, we've kind of started over here and we've been going toward this verse. And we said from the very beginning that this was really the capstone of this whole series, that it was based upon one truth that we just could count on. Time after time after time. And it's about how not just that God's going to work some good things, but it's about the sufficiency of God to be able to do that, the sovereignty of God, that he really is over all things. Because as we have found out, this was a messy family. We're messy families. And and the hope isn't that we all of a sudden just get it all right. How many of you kind of almost given up on that fact that your family is going to get it all right? And so you've had to look beyond your own family and your own ability to walk straight and narrow and perfectly every day. But you found that there's a hope in that finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, one of the great things, since we kept this as a focus, even through some of the darker times, Of this story from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, even when it was a little bit kind of way off and all of a sudden he finds himself in a pit and in a prison and all these different places, we knew at the end that it was going to kind of work out. It's the benefit of knowing the rest of the story. I I can imagine that some of you spent time uh, when your kids were little and you would tell them some of the Bible stories. And especially if you're telling some of the Bible stories of the Old Testament, some of those can, they're, they're not really kid friendly. You know, there's some really kind of really kind of graphic stories in the Old Testament that take a little bit of explaining, especially if you were uh, trying to read to a a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old, and you're going, okay, they can easily get intimidated. And I can really see a dad saying this to a to a little girl that he's reading this this story from. Don't worry, honey. God is still in control. It's all going to work out. You'll see. I mean, can you imagine saying that to your child when it gets to some of those really scary places, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they get thrown into a fire, and all these other things that happen in the Old Testament. I mean, there's some graphic things that happen there, and I can imagine that if we're sharing that with our child, we're going, but hold on, hold on. The story's not over yet. We're going to get to a place where we're going to see the sufficiency of God. Well, you and I have had that benefit in our lives. We've had the benefit of being able to, in this story, to see in 13 chapters cover something like 30 plus years. And so we know that in the end, it's all going to work out. But do you have that faith in your own life? Since you're still living the chapters of your life, and it's spread out over 30, 40, 50 years, when crisis comes, when dark times come, when confusion comes, can you say with the same confidence, okay, honey, it's all going to work out. And sometimes even as parents... When we see the fright of our children, we see their uncertainty. It it brings about not only the uncertainty, but we look for words of comfort. And guys, as much as we would quote scripture and all those different things, let's be honest that there are times in our own lives as adults that as much as we would be believers in Christ and all the promises that he has made, that there's a little bit of doubt in our heart. There's a little bit of fragileness there of just going, okay, I'm thinking this is going to work out. I believe these promises. And yet, because we don't know the rest of the story yet, we find that that we're pretty vulnerable. Vulnerable to mood swings, to to ups and downs, to to times of great faith, but also times of despair and fear and worry. I, I would imagine that there's probably not a person here in this morning, in the service this morning, that at some point over the last seven days didn't worry about something. And we may look back and we go, you know, that was kind of just fruitless. That really got me nowhere. We see that it accomplished nothing. And yet in the vulnerability of real life, folks, there are times that we don't know the future. And even if we have verses like this and we know that God is sovereign over all things and he's finished all the work that was needed to make us part of his family through the work of Christ, there are times in everyday life that I don't know... (laughs) You know, we can say it to our kids, honey, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine. But do we believe that? Have we embraced that? Emma, can you help me for a second? People usually remember the illustrations better than the sermon, so... You know, sometimes our life is a lot like this, guys. Yeah, it's a lot of rope, because we have pretty long lives. And, you know, sometimes we're, when, when we're going along in life... You know, kind of, we get this turn that's back over here, and then we all of a sudden we get a a turn that's this way, and our life just doesn't. Have you ever wanted a linear life, a life that just made sense, and didn't have a lot of twists and turns? And sometimes, like this rope, you can't see it from up here, but it's it's kind of getting all jumbled up and everything, and and we just want a life that kind of makes sense. And we know that this is a promise, and we're kind of going there, and yet when we look back in our life. Uh, Sherry, could you give me a description of what you see right there? Twist and, turns. twist and turns. And that describes most of our lives, guys. The faith life is a lot of twists and turns. And, and yet there's going to be a day, guys. I promise you, there's going to be a day. And it probably won't be on planet Earth. Maybe he'll give us the wisdom to be able to do this. That, that God is going to show us. Now, you hold on to your end there, okay? And he's just going to show us. Yeah, there was a lot of twists and there was a lot of turns, but I was always, I was always working to one end for my glory and for your good. And what seems so twisted and out of place and and repetitious, and and sometimes, I mean, sometimes has your rope just kind of sat there and went in a circle for, you know, over time after time after time, and you're going, God, this is a waste. God, what are you doing here? I promise you that in God's vantage point, and and what God is doing to bring about his promises, it's a straight line. To us, it looks totally confusing. To us, it looks like wasted time. It looks like burdens that we should have never had. But God is always, always working toward his glory and our good. In one way, thank you so much. You, You can let go of that. In one way, wouldn't it be great if you could just see the straight lines of your life, Seth? You know, how God was working everything to that purpose. But we don't. And so there's this thing called faith that God requires of us. And the faith is that when we see nothing but like twists and turns and repetitious circles and this and the other, that God really is working something on a linear basis, that he truly is working for a cause and a purpose that makes sense. But it may only make sense from eternity. That's what we've seen here. We've seen a lot of twists and turns. We've seen a lot of things that happened, and and none of it really looks like it's going to work out well until kind of the final end. And then we begin to see that Joseph gets this place of promise, that we begin to see that God is working a plan, even though he's already been in the pits. He's been thrown in there, and his life really wasn't supposed to go on. And then even when he starts to get on that path, and it looks like there's something of saving value for his life, all of a sudden, he rises to a place of somewhat prominence. He's kind of in control over Potiphar's house, and then he gets thrown in prison. From, from Joseph's perspective, I don't care how much faith you have, it looks like a lot of twists and turns and a lot of different things that are not linear, that are not just really going straight toward this. And yet, this is where we've been reaching and racing for the last nine weeks. Truth is, I truly believe this with all my heart, that God is a, a, a God who is always working toward the purposes of his glory in our life and our good. Theologically, I realize that that could be quite challenging. I mean, somebody easily could come up and say, Pastor, so you're saying that yesterday when a gunman j- comes into a place of worship and shoots people and, and does all these uh, heinous things, that that's working good. Guys, I'm not saying that God is ever the cause. Of, of sin, and, and He never uh, causes us to sin. Can God bring glory for Himself, and can He work even that for good? I have to believe that. But, well, but, Pastor but what if that was your family? What if that was this church? Guys, I have to believe that. Because He's sovereign. He's over all things. I don't have the answer. I don't begin to understand with, I could study theology for the rest of my life, and I can't begin to understand why the curves and why the dips and why the, all the other evil things happen in this world, and we get into the places that we get into. I mean, I know the theological answer. It was never God's design, and it happens in Genesis 3 when we sin and we rebel. And because of that, we live in a fallen world. And when you live in a fallen world with fallen people, fallen things happen not trying to be uncaring about the tragedy of yesterday or the day before or the day before, but folks, this is the result of living in a fallen world. And yet here's our hope in the midst of a fallen world, that there's a sovereign God who is over all things. If he's not sovereign, that is, if he's not authority over all things, believe me, we have no hope. We have no hope beyond what God, who God is and his might and his authority over all things. This is a big subject, guys. This isn't just for that theological acumen where you can kind of put it up there and go, okay, I, I think I know what sovereignty means. It means that God is all, you know, over all things. His sovereignty means that he really does have authority over all things. It's the natural result, guys, of him being omnipotent and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. The natural result of that is, is, is he's, just, he's an all authority. There is nothing beyond the authority of God. A natural question from a lot of people at that point would be well, then why doesn't God just stop some of these things? Simple question, guys. Maybe not so simple. Could God have stopped the tragedy yesterday? Yeah. God can do anything. Why he doesn't, I, I don't know. I really don't know. But I don't think his motive is sitting there from heaven. Like sometimes we would picture him going, okay guys, you got in this mess, you can get yourselves out. No, he's a loving, merciful God. He gave his only son so that, that we would have hope. And even in that, I think that God is still working things for his glory and for his good. I don't say these words lightly. It's not a theological concept that is easy to absorb in a world of evil. It's not an easily theological concept to absorb in the ups and downs and the curves and twists of your life. As much as we would be heartbroken over the tragedy that happened yesterday and days before and and tragedies that happened left and right, let's be honest, guys. The the tragedies that consume our lives are not the ones that happen in Pennsylvania or this place or that. It's the ones that happen in our own house and affect our own lives and our own marriage and our own kids. I mean, those are the ones that really begin to challenge our faith. I'm not saying that we don't have a love for the world and that we uh, don't think about evil when it happens all over the place. But it's the disconnects in our own life that really challenge our faith the most. And so while we can be widely theological and just kind of do the concepts and say, here's how it all works on planet Earth, bottom line is if you're going to have a faith that truly believes us, embraces us, and runs toward this, then we have to believe that in all the twists and all the turns and all the ups and all the downs and all the challenges of life, that God is sovereign and that He is working even in the midst. He's not causing. God would never cause sin. He never would cause sin but that he can work in the midst of that. See, the real application is if if that wasn't the hope, then how many of y'all have been written off by the age of two? (laughs) Really, theologically, day two, (laughs) hour two, minute two. Uh, Look what happens here when the father dies. Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to them. You know, last week, Jacob dies, 147. He gives the blessing to his uh, children, and he blesses them in in such a personal way. He gives them kind of a perfect, hey, here's the things that you need to be aware of as, as time passes. These are vulnerabilities in your life. You need to trust God with these things. And then he dies. And he says, I want to be buried back with my ancestors. And, and so he gets buried back there. Well, now all that has happened, there's been, in the first 14 verses, they've taken this, this big troop of people and the family all the way back to uh, Jacob's homeland. They've buried him, and now they've come back. And, and along the way, the, the brothers of Joseph begin to think, okay, now that dad is gone, I wonder if this is when Joseph is really going to exact justice upon us. I wonder now that dad's out of the picture, if he's going to say, okay, guys, I didn't want to do this because I didn't want to break my dad's heart. But the truth is, guys, you did some really mean stuff to me, and you need to pay for it. And that's their worry. And so in verse 15, it says, okay, are you going to, is he going to pay back the evil that we did? And we begin to see that maybe he was holding back because of the father. And look what Joseph says in response, verse 16 17. Or what they do to kind of see how Joseph is going to respond. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Now, I don't know if he he really did this or not. You know, they've been kind of connivers all along the way. And we don't have any record of Jacob really saying this. But he very well could have. I mean, he did tell them as they departed, okay, guys, y'all don't fight. Remember that time a couple of chapters ago? He said, okay, don't be arguing. I know you're kind of prone to arguing amongst each other. Don't argue. And so maybe they're thinking of that. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brother and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God your, of your father. And what does it say there at the end? This is Joseph's Weft when they spoke to him. They come and they say, okay, dad said, let us off. Dad said, let's not fight. Let's let bygones be bygones. You know, you, you seem to have forgiven us. Guys, they have now been in Egypt for probably 10, 13, maybe 15 years. We don't know exactly how long it's been. It's been a long time that Joseph has demonstrated a heart of forgiveness. And yet now that the father's gone, they're, they're kind of worried, okay? Was it all contingent on dad just not being upset? And, and Joseph didn't want to disappoint dad? And so their fears come out. And when Joseph hears this, as they go back to him and say, you know, now dad said, <laughs> keep on forgiving us. That Joseph weeps. Why, why do you think he wept? I think the reality is in his heart, he knew that he'd already forgiven them many, many, many years ago and that it was said and done and he had demonstrated that by the actions of his life and then to be questioned. It wasn't so much, uh, you shouldn't have even asked, haven't I demonstrated? It wasn't a kind of a, a frustrated weeping, I don't think. I think it was a broken hearted weeping But they couldn't grasp the truth. The same kind of weeping that I believe that Jesus had often, for his disciples that were around him. They just couldn't grasp the truth. And, and that he wept when they didn't. Remember when Lazarus dies? What did Jesus do? He wept. That was he weeping because Lazarus had died? He knows that he's going to bring him back to life. Why is he weeping? Because he saw how frail and how, you know, they, they just, their, their lack of faith in that they didn't understand the big picture. Guys, as we start here and we run toward that and we see nothing but just knots in, in the rope of our life, God sees that finished work. He sees that He's always working for this. And I do believe that there's times in my life that I've caused my Heavenly Father to weep, but not because He's mad at me, not because He says, you know, you should have learned by now. He's saying, My son, you can trust me. Why have you allowed fear to enter into your heart? Why have you allowed a lack of faith to, to make you wonder? I mean, guys, if we put ourselves in this position, have you, do you think we ever have to go back? Do you think that one day we're going to stand before God himself and go, Now, God, you remember your son. He died on the cross to forgive us. Do you think we need to remind God of that? I'm not trying to be silly, guys. I'm just trying to, to say Why is it that we have this fragile faith at times? Why is it that that we really do struggle in the knots and and all the mess-ups of our lives in those dark times when we're in the pit or we're in the prison and and all of a sudden we think, okay, God, have you abandoned me? When all the time God says, look, man, I'm working things for my glory and for your good. And that is for believers, okay? But for unbelievers, I, I don't know that we can say that same thing. But, but I know as believers, we can make that declaration. We see it again in Romans 8.28. We see it in the New Testament that, that we begin to see this. But look what happens here. God is sovereign. He's over all things. There's nothing out of the control of this God. But then we have to say, okay, now how much does God control, choose to control? That's always going to be the question of, of God's sovereignty. Most people are not going to argue that God is sovereign, most believers. But what we argue about is, okay, how involved should God be? Should God have stepped in the doorway yesterday before those people were shot in that synagogue? I'm just being honest with you guys. There's a part of me going, okay, God, you can, you should. It's tragic that people would lose their lives. I would do God a whole different way than the way that God does God. And I would be messed with because I'm narrow-sighted. I don't see the big picture. I would see things that are, and I would have sensitivities, but all of that is coming from a mind that is not perfected. I don't have all knowledge. I don't have all that God has. And it's in that all that He is, all powerful, all knowledge, present everywhere, that God is working for His perfection, for His glory. As I don't say these things lightly. I've sat in the homes of people who just lost a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife. My theology doesn't make me uh, non-sensitive to the hurts of life. It's the only thing I have to come in and sit with that family that is devastated and they're heartbroken and they don't see tomorrow or their tomorrow is one without a lot of hope. And I promise you, it's not this uncaring, well, the Bible says God is sovereign. He's working everything for His glory. Believe me, I have never said that to somebody as they're sitting there across from a loved one who has just passed. But if I don't have that truth, if I don't have that foundation, that I cannot minister to that family. All I have is hope, Allison. I should have asked you before, Allison. You're a speech therapist. You work with kids all the time that that maybe have some speech difficulties. And you try to help them? Is the only thing that you have going for you when you sit down with someone is that you're and that you just have a really good heart and you want them to be able to, to do better at the end of the year than when they begin the year? Or do you actually have some truth and some science that tells, okay, here's probably the problem. There's maybe this thing happening in the ear or there's this thing happening. I don't know the complexities of your work, but is there a truthfulness that gives you hope or do you just have this wish and hope because you just have a big heart? You have a science and a truth that gives you hope. That's where we are in life, guys. If all we have is just hope, if all you have is just wishing, well, I just wish things get better. Remember what grandma used to say about wishing? (laughs) We have a solid truth. It's the finished work of Christ. But look what he says in verse 18 and 19. Joseph does not have complete knowledge of God's sovereignty, but he has enough of it to base a response. And he says in verse 18 and 19, his brothers also came to him and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Now he's already corrected them one time and said, stand up. I'm your brother. You're my brother. You're not my servants. I'm not going to make you be my servants or my slaves. So he's already corrected that many years before, but now their fear is rekindled. They come, they know they're in a vulnerable position, so they do what is well a lot of people do in a vulnerable position. They're going, "Let's save our necks." And so they bow down before Joseph, who has shown them love and forgiveness now for many, many, many years, and he says, and they, they said, "We're going to be your servants," verse 19. But Joseph said to them, "What? Do not fear." For am I in the place of God? And he goes, I'm looking at that. That's God. God's the sovereign one. I'm not the ruler here. But I love those first words. He says, don't fear. And we finally get to verse 20. After he says, don't be be fearful. Am I in the place of God? I'm not going to have this authority over you. Only God is the one that's the authority over you. Then he comes out with this great theological truth. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's something very pragmatic and practical about this. He said, guys, there was a famine. And if you were back in the homeland, my family would have ceased to exist. They would have all starved to death. But God, even through your rebellion and your sin, He worked that. You threw me in a pit. I got picked up by these slave traders. They took me over here. I worked my way up to where I was in charge of Potiphar's house. Then his wife comes on to me, and I refuse that. She tells lies. I get thrown in prison. But even that did not keep God from working to the place where I finally was second in command of all of Egypt, where I could make the decision, hey, save this crop for these seven years when there's plenty, so that we can have plenty for the seven years when there's going to be famine. And all of that was from God. And Joseph realizes that it's all from God. So he gives them this great, great verse that even though you meant evil, he's not attributing to God evil. He says that even in the midst of the evil that happens to us, fallen people in a fallen world, that God can work even in the midst of that. So look at his conclusion in verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and and spoke kindly to them. Do you see the picture that's going on here? Joseph is not the hero of this story, guys. He does some really heroic things. He's a good guy. God's hand of blessing is upon him. But Joseph is not the hero here. God is the hero. God is the one that is holding the string. And even when it gets all complicated and knotted, that God is the one that's working things for his good. And from this, there's three truths. You're going, okay, we've been listening for a while and you're just now getting to three points. Okay, It's not three points. It's three truths that, that apply to us very quick. Why does God's sovereignty matter in your life? Three truths. First one. No pain is ever pointless or wasted. Because He is sovereign, no pain is ever pointless or wasted. I don't know why God would allow this pain into some people's life and that pain into other people's life. I know it's a result of fallen people living in a fallen world. But I know this because God is sovereign, because He is over all things, it's never wasted. God is the economy. He's not the author of that sin. He doesn't promote that sin. But folks, even if your life is messed up by your sin or the sins of others, the pain that comes from that is not wasted in God's economy. In the story of Joseph, in this account of Joseph, would you say that God used the pain that Joseph had? I mean, certainly... I mean, can you imagine being thrown into a pit rejected? You don't know if you're going to live or die. All the times that he was in prison for, for all these, uh, this long time, and he doesn't know if he's going to get out of this prison. Joseph had a lot of pain in his life. One of two answers. Do you think God used it, or do you think God wasted it? In, in, in knowing the story of the last nine weeks, what would you say? Okay. Nothing was wasted. There wasn't one tear. Somebody said one time, Pastor. I heard one time that when we get to heaven, God's going to have you know, like this bottle there, and it's going to be every tear that we ever cried. Do you think that's? What I said, I don't know. I don't think it's, I can't find a verse that goes with that. But I said it wouldn't surprise me at all. It wouldn't surprise me at all because God is conscious of every tear that's ever come from our from our eyes, and He doesn't waste anything. There's a purpose even in that. He doesn't cause the sin. He's not perpetrating evil, but no evil is ever wasted, guys, with a sovereign God. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, again, this is a truth for believers. This is the people who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. This is not all of humanity. This is for those who place trust in, in Christ. And we know that for those who love God, what's the next two words? What about some things? What about most things? What about a whole lot of things? What does God say there? All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know how God does it. This little feeble mind does not even begin to conceive how God can take tragedy and he can turn it into triumph how he can take the heartbreaks of our lives and all these circles and all these knots and all these things that we would have in the rope of our life and how he can say, no, I was always working something. I was always working toward an end. But he does. So the first truth that we have is that no pain is ever wasted. The second truth is that no path is ever a dead end. Sometimes we get freaked out because we have to make adult decisions in life. Jobs, moves, this place that way. Do I get married or not? If, I, if you decide that you do get married, who do I get married to? I mean, there's a lot of adult decisions that go on. And, and the weight of those decisions sometimes can be so big in our lives about should I take this direction or should I take that direction? Guys, here's a hope. Let me give this to you. I do believe that God has a definite will for our lives and that there's, you know, if we're, if we're at a crossroads and an impasse, that God really does have a defined will. I believe with all my heart that God wanted me to be married. I believe that God is such a personal God that he actually had this beautiful lady to be my wife. I really believe in that much of a personal God. It wasn't just kind of... But it's one of those things that, what if I would have chosen this other one? What if I was in a rebellious state of my life? What if I didn't listen to God and I just went somewhere else? Here's the hope, guys. Here's the hope. That even when we're rebellious... As long as we're breathing life, God can be working to get us back on the path, and he can use that in our lives. There are no dead ends with God. Think about Joseph's travels. Kind of works out good. Three Ps. The pit, to the prison, to the palace. Now, could God have taken him straight to the palace? He could have. He didn't, though. He allowed him to be in the pit. He allowed him to be in the prison. God always working in the midst of that to bring him to the place where he was in the palace and he had this ability to get his family and many others through this time when they didn't have crops and they would have starved to death. Jesus had a grasp on this. There's a time right there at the end when they come to arrest Jesus. And Peter. Did Peter love Jesus. Yes, loved him amazingly. But but what does he do when they try to come arrest Jesus? Anybody remember what Peter does? Not on my watch. You know, pulls out the little dagger and he chops off the guy's ear. You know, Peter is going to make a stand. Why? Because he is emotional. He is uh, kind of uh, reacts from the help, uh, and because he loves Jesus. he does that. And in John 18, 10, 11, here's what Jesus says. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now listen how Jesus responds, guy. This guy's ear is just falling off there. And uh, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you understand what's happening there? Is Jesus freaked out? Is Jesus afraid? Does it look to every disciple that this is a twirly line and a knot and it's going this way and that way? And we thought we were going to set up a kingdom and we were going to be generals and we were going to be vice presidents and we are going to be all these things. And this is not happening. They're coming to arrest him. And what will our life be if they arrest him, especially if they kill him? To them, it looks like total chaos. It looks like a plan that has went totally under. And yet Jesus says, no, I've I, I got to drink from what? The Father's plans are, I've got to drink from this cup. It's the cup of wrath. You know what the cup of wrath is in the Bible? It's all of our sins. And so Jesus, even in that moment, says, Look, man, I'm, I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about you. And, and I, there's no way you can have a relationship with the Holy God without me. And so I'm going to keep on going this path. And even though it's going to look like it's a total disconnect, it looks like a total failure. God's glory and your good is being worked out if I go to this. Now think about the path. You know, we just talked about the the pits. We talked about how uh, uh, he went from the pit to to the prison, to the palace. Think about where Jesus went. He went from arrest to false trials. He he went to a cross. They laid him in a tomb, but he rose again, and now he sits sits at the right hand of God. Makes sense now. But when Peter's there and they come trying to arrest him, Peter does this impulsive thing because it seems right at the moment. Man, I'll, I'll give my very life. He was earnest, but he was earnestly wrong. There's been times in our lives, guys, that you're going to be earnest, but without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be earnestly wrong. But here's the hope. Even if you take that path, there are no dead ends with a holy God. Can you make a mistake big enough that God can't correct? You think highly of yourself if you think that you can out-sin a holy God who's over all things. If you think that you are so superior and your ability to mess up that God can't redirect and use it for His glory and Your God, then you think way too much of yourself and you don't think nearly enough of my God. Not minimizing the hurts of our lives. I'm just saying, I want to maximize God. Because where I live, my faith is pretty fragile. You put me in one of these little loop loops of my life, and I go, man, this is the same place I was three years ago. I keep on doing this wrong thing. I'm frustrated with myself. I'm frustrated with God. I'm certainly frustrated with you because somehow it's your fault, even though it's totally my fault. But isn't that how we do, guys? And the whole whole time, God's just got this straight line. He says, man, I'm using it for my glory and for your good. Truth number three, and then we'll close. Not only is no pain ever pointless or wasted with God, no path is ever a dead end with God, but no person is ever a lost cause. There's n- we, can never, we can never go up to somebody and say, you know, you are a lost cause. Until they take their final breath and they have lived in rebellion and they never receive the grace and the mercy of God, we can never authentically say, theologically say, you're a lost cause. One example from the story, then we'll close. Judah. Judah is not this guy who's just standing there in the early part. He's not, you know, throwing up a, a defense for, for his brother in all those years that the the brothers are rebelling against them. Reuben and Simeon and all those may be the leaders, but Judah's right in there with them. And yet there comes a time that, remember several chapters ago, that, that Judah stood there and and. He didn't know that it was his brother yet. And he said, no, Benjamin, I require Benjamin. And what did Judah do? He did this very Christ-like thing. He said, no, take my life. Let me just send my brother, my little brother, back to my father. Now, why did he do that, guys? Why did he do that? Because he valued his father's heart. You go back several chapters when we began... None of those brothers valued the father's heart. When you're willing to say that even though he was the favorite son, oh, your son has died, a wild animal killed him, here's, here's his coat, it's covered with blood. You don't care about your father, you care about yourself. You don't care about your brother, and you certainly don't care about your father at that point. And yet there was a redeeming point somewhere along the way with Judah where all of a sudden the conviction of God and God moved in his life, and he said, this is wrong. And he says, I'm, I'm willing to stand in the place of my brother Benjamin. Will you take me and let Benjamin go? There's no person who's a lost cause. No person at all. And as we looked at last week, it's this Judah that eventually we see in the lineage of Matthew 1 and 2. We eventually see in Revelation 5, when they're standing there with these seals or, or with these scrolls, and they said, who can open these things? You know, this, this future of human history, who can open these things? There's nobody here worthy. And in Revelation 5, and it says, oh, there is one that's worthy. He's the Lion of Judah. And it was Christ coming through this lineage. As we said last week, the Bible, folks, it looks like this. All kinds of stories, all kinds of peoples. And yet, what we saw last week, remember, that from Genesis, in this foretelling of Judah, to Revelation 5, God stretches that string and he connects the, old, the first book of the Old Testament to the last book of the New Testament. He, he, he stretches this theme that he is sovereign, that he's got it all figured out. I will never make light of the hardships that you're going through. Please don't hear anything as crass and as unloving as that. But, guys, this is our hope. Not a phrase in the Bible, but what it says about the one that it talks about that God is sovereign. And with that, there is nothing wasted, there is no lost cause. His sovereignty over us truly gives us a peace. Even in the midst when all we can see is circles and knots and backtrack and and everything else that is confusing, that's our hope. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we, we thank you that as we go through this book, Father, it truly has had a lot of twists and turns. And Father, we had the great benefit of knowing that in the end, everything was going to work out. Father, we had the benefit of knowing that that there really was a truth behind Genesis 50-20. And yet this morning, Father, we as a people, we need for you to increase our faith in this truth. Father, there's a part of our mind and a part of our our, our faith that says, yes, you are sovereign over all things. You're going to work out this all for your good. And yet, Father, we cannot even see the light of day right now. So, Father, in our marriages where it seems like there's nothing but hurt and frustration and false promises and, and false hopes, will you place a hope that only you can give? Father, for big decisions that we have to make, jobs and this and that and children and all these different things, complex, adult-like things that we have to kind of have upon our mind. Father, will you give us direction and let us know that, Father, you do have a way for us to go. But even if for some reason we messed up, Father, there's no dead ends with you. That even when we're not seeking you, you are always pursuing us. And so, Father, this morning we're going to sing this song one last time to you, Father. And I pray that we sing it, Father, in a a way to you that we believe and that it increases our faith. Father, thank you that you didn't say that we had to have a mountain-sized faith. You said that we just had a mustard seed of faith. But that, that mustard seed of faith could move mountains. Why? Because that faith is in you and your ability to do things that we could never do. So, Father, we stand now. We sing this song to you. Father, even as we sing it, will you increase our faith? Father, would you, would you straighten our rope a little bit, even as we would sing this, Father, that we would be able to see that, that it's not wasted, that our failures are not going to define us when we place our faith in you. And that there's a hope in the future that you have for your people. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. So We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online